I want to call your attention now to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2. Before we read, let me say this just in way of introduction. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, we see letters written to seven churches or to the, the messengers or ministers of seven churches. And the letters come from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of his churches, And each of these letters has its own distinct message and emphasis. We want to read the letter that begins in chapter 2, verse 18, to Thyatira. Revelation 2, 18, it says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first, notwithstanding. I have a few things against thee, Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, And unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. May God give his blessing to the reading of his word today. In the words of verse 29, if you have an ear, if you have even so much as one ear, then hear what the Holy Spirit says today 
to us through this letter to the church at Thyatira. As with most of these seven churches, the church at Thyatira had some things for which the Lord commends them. That's mentioned in verse 19. Works, charity, service, faith, patience, and yet more works. On the other hand, the church at Thyatira needed to be rebuked as well. And the rebuke, of course, is in verse 20 and following. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. As you read this, is it not hard to imagine how the church at Thyatira was even functioning at all with this woman that is apparently nicknamed Jezebel, probably wasn't her real name, but she was in a character and manner like the woman called Jezebel in the Old Testament who supported idolatry and false prophets and persecuted the true prophets of God. This woman in Thyatira is in the church and she is carrying on some kind of a teaching ministry. She is a self-proclaimed prophetess. She calls herself a prophetess And she's teaching. And what is she teaching? She is encouraging false doctrine. And as best as we can understand what was going on there with her and the influence that she had in that congregation, she is teaching them maybe some terrible abuse of Christian liberty to participate in pagan feasts and rituals to false gods and in the immoral behavior that most always went along with the worship of false gods and still does to this day. Some writers suggest that she disguised this deception in terms of a deeper knowledge, some kind of a Gnostic-type approach that would liberate people from their moral bonds and in that way would somehow magnify the grace of God and only truly turn His grace into a license for sin. The influence of this Jezebel in the church at Thyatira is described in verse 24 as the depths of Satan. Depths of Satan. Let me just say in passing here today, 
religion that is based upon and geared toward the emotions oftentimes leads to the same kind of sinful, immoral action as was going on here in Thyatira. And that's not to say that God has not given us emotions and our emotions should not be stirred, but they must be governed with the truth. They must be guided and stirred by the truth. And emotionalism is not an end in itself, as is sadly the case in many places that call themselves churches today. Well, there's a rebuke here for the church as a whole in Thyatira because they were tolerating this. They were allowing it to go on. Again, in verse 20, they were suffering. They were permitting it. They were not doing anything to stop what this Jezebel was up to. And of course, they should have. That's the implication here. They should not have allowed this to continue on. And yet, God himself was very patient with this bad situation. God patiently bore with this woman, according to verse 21, giving her space to repent of her fornication. And the word space here in our old English translation is literally the word time. God gave her time to repent, but she continued on in her sin and did not repent, it says at the end of verse 21. Now I want to point out just a few main doctrines to draw from what we have seen here thus far. Churches have strengths and weaknesses. Among these seven churches, some were in better shape than others, but all churches have strengths and weaknesses because of the very composition of people who are not yet sinlessly glorified and with Christ in heaven yet. And so every church has its problems, its challenges, its difficulties, as well as its strengths and its usefulness. And it's bringing glory to God. There is no perfect church. Thyatira was far from a perfect church, but our Lord still owns it as his church. And he loves it enough to write it a letter telling the church what it needs to do. And though we try our best, there's no perfect church on this earth. Another principle or doctrine to consider here is that churches err against the revealed will of God by having women teachers and preachers. The instruction of the New Testament is very clear on this. And how so many today have missed this or found a way around it is just uh, lamentable. 
and, and a disgrace. Paul says to Timothy that women are not to teach in the church. He goes on and says that those who are to teach in the church are to be the husband of one wife. Clearly, Jezebel did not qualify. And yet, she has this teaching ministry in Thyatira. And of course, it wasn't just that she was teaching. It was also the content of her teaching that was so wicked and encouraging of sin and fornication in connection with idolatry and idolatrous Feasts, eating things sacrificed unto idols and committing fornication, not only spiritual unfaithfulness to God, but physical fornication. Thirdly, churches err by allowing open sin, idolatry, fornication. Churches err by allowing open sin to continue in their midst. Jesus says, I have this against you. He points this out as an evil among them. God expects us to exercise church discipline in cases like this, in cases that call for it. And the last thing I would mention is this. From verse 21, God patiently gives people space to repent of their sins and to seek forgiveness and cleansing through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the point that I want to develop and dwell upon here in the time that remains today. Again, Revelation 2:21 I gave her space or literally time to repent of her fornication and she repented not So let me make several observations here concerning this First of all God could have punished And we'll just call her Jezebel. He could have punished Jezebel immediately upon the first incursion into this sin. But he didn't. He could have. And if he had, he would have been perfectly just in doing so. Likewise, God could punish you and me immediately. At any point in our career of sin. But the fact that we are here today is a testimony to the same patience and long-suffering of God that Jezebel enjoyed. Sometimes we hear stories of people who the Lord is not so patient with. We hear of some young person, perhaps, who suddenly dies while committing a crime. Someone dies 
in the very act of sin. I could tell you stories, but I think I will forbear. You can think of some in your own memory, I'm sure. And when God does cut that life off immediately, in the very act of sin, he's doing nothing that is unjust or unrighteous or unfair. He is simply withholding patience and letting justice do its work. And if God had treated all of us in that way, none of us would be here today. We'd already be in hell. But God withheld immediate judgment from Jezebel as he oftentimes does. And he oftentimes does it even today. He's patient, long-suffering, forbearing. His wrath exists, but he restrains it. He defers it. He holds it back for a while. Oh, how patient God is. I think he's more patient than you or I would be and and that you and I are toward others oftentimes. How long suffering is his patience. And this verse tells us why he restrains his wrath. It is so that, in this case, Jezebel might repent. I gave her time, he says, to repent, to have a change of mind concerning her sin against a holy God. This is the revealed purpose for the delay in Jezebel's judgment, in the execution of God's righteous wrath against her. It is for this purpose, to give her opportunity to repent. And likewise today, God gives most unworthy sinners much time to repent, much opportunity to repent. That is to rethink and to change our mind in the most profound way concerning our sinful course. God delays his wrath falling upon multitudes today simply to give them opportunity to turn away from their sin and avoid the sad Consequences of their sin, both in time and eternity. He gives us time to humble ourselves before him and seek forgiveness and seek deliverance. And yes, escape the eternal consequences of our sin against him. And I would underscore here the word gave in Revelation 2.21. I gave her 
space to repent. This gift of time is a gift from God. It isn't something that he owed to Jezebel. He wasn't fulfilling any obligation to Jezebel by withholding his his wrath and judgment from her. The delay was nothing but a gift, graciously given. And beloved, God owes nothing to any of us in way of delay of punishment for our sins. If he were to punish us immediately, as I said a moment ago, he would be doing what is right. The only thing God owes us is punishment, in fact. And any delay in that punishment, any stay of execution for a time, any opportunity to be reconciled to him and to repent of our sins and come to Christ for salvation is a gift. The fact that you and I are here today is testimony that God has given us this gift of time which he doesn't owe us. Furthermore, by failing to use her opportunity for the purpose for which it was given, Jezebel only added to her guilt before God. And the following verses show us just how hotly God's wrath burned against her. He describes it in these painful words. Verse 22, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death. And in applying that to us today, those who waste the God-given gift of time, the God-given extension and who only abuse that gift and misappropriate the time and use it for more sin rather than for repenting from sin, incur greater guilt and condemnation from God and add to the cumulative weight of sin. Those who use the time to repent as only time to sin more, aggravate their crimes against God. And when his patience comes to an end and judgment does come, his holy wrath will wax hotter and more fierce than if they had never had an extension of time and had never been dealt with so patiently by God. Now I want to show you that this is the testimony of Scripture, not only in Revelation 2, but consistently throughout. Let me just give a few parallel passages. We read in Romans chapter 2 these words, Despisest thou the riches 
of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The purpose for the goodness, the patience, the long-suffering of God to a sinner is that it might lead that sinner to repent. This is the revealed will of God. This is the revealed purpose. But this passage in Romans 2 goes on to say what is always the case apart from the grace of God intervening. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's that adding on and piling on to the pile of sin. Instead of using the long-suffering of God as occasion to repent of sin, we all naturally abuse that time and use it as opportunities to sin all the more and build up this stockpile of guilt before God. So Romans 2 is saying what our text says also. And there's this passage in 2 Peter that is often connected with the Romans 2 passage that says, God is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. He's not slow. People think God is slow. He's like an old decrepit man. He, he just can't get on his feet to come and carry out judgment or something. No, that's not it at all. And those who think so are sadly deceived. Rather, it is that he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and so on. Peter tells us, don't confuse God's patience with slowness. Don't imagine that God's patience indicates any lack of concern. Don't imagine that God's delay in sending punishment upon sinners is a delay that will never end. No, it will end. And we see that in other passages. We see it exemplified in Genesis chapter 6 when before the flood God said, My spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. God was patient with this wicked world before the flood from this point for another 120 years though God determined that he would destroy the earth with a flood yet he delayed for 120 years why didn't he do it immediately well it was so that Noah could build the ark God was very patient with all of that generation while he was giving Noah time to build the ark and 
Peter in the New Testament says exactly that. The long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. There's a passage in the Gospel of Matthew in the ministry of our Lord Jesus where he indicates this same principle at work. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Then he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He says in so many words, I have given you opportunity to repent. I have come and exercised this public ministry among you. I was willing for you to come to me, but you wouldn't come. Just like Jezebel, you refused to repent. So he says, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Instead of repenting and coming to Christ, they refused like their forefathers who stoned the prophets well they would eventually crucify the son of god himself and bring upon themselves then this desolation of their house as he calls it and that of course is the destruction of jerusalem in ad 70 let me give you one more passage that shows the the patience of god and then the judgment that finally falls Listen to this from again from our Lord in Luke chapter 13. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. The owner of this vineyard was patient He had been patient for three years with no fruit from this fig tree. But the caretaker begs for one more year. Be patient a little longer. One more season. And our Lord is picturing here, of course, the same thing as we mentioned in the previous passage. This is Israel's fruitlessness. With opportunity after opportunity, delay after delay of judgment upon them, they continue on in their sin. And it's as if the mercy of God cries out one more year. You can imagine this discussion. Justice calls for immediate destruction and judgment. Cut it down. But mercy pleads a little more time, a little more space to repent, a little more watering and fertilizing, a few more sermons, a few more Lord's Days, 
And then if there is no improvement, if there's no repentance, if there's no faith in Christ, if there's no fruit, then cut him down, destroy him, take him to judgment. And so we see this principle through and through the scriptures. I gave her time to repent. And she repented not. Let's take a few moments just to talk about repentance. Since it's so central to what the Lord says here. And I've given you already something of a very brief Dictionary definition of repentance in the Greek language, it means a change of mind. Our English term comes from the Latin that means literally to rethink, to reexamine, and to do so in such a way that leads to a change of direction, a change of course in life. When a person repents, he says, God is right and I'm wrong, He's holy and I'm evil. I need a Savior to deliver me from my sin and to deliver me from God's wrath. Repentance is one side of the coin of which the other side is faith. And inasmuch as we turn from sin, we turn toward Christ and find in Him righteousness and all that we need to be acceptable unto God. Let me give a more lengthy definition of repentance. And I use this often and I can't find anything any better. This comes from Thomas Watson many years ago. He says, repentance is a turning from sin with the heart. With the heart, inwardly. It's not just words. It's not just appearances. It's an inward turn. Turning from sin with the heart. It is a turning from all sin. Not just one big public sin. It's all of our sins. That God sees all of. Repentance is a turning from sin for the right reason. Not just because it hurts me. Not even because it hurts my neighbors and my family. But because it offends God. We see God first and foremost in our repentance. Yes, there's always lots of collateral damage among our fellow man. But first and foremost, we repent because of God. Repentance, fourthly, is a turning to God. It's not just turning from sin it's turning to God some people try to give up a sin without ever turning to God and they try to clean up their life and turn over a new leaf without ever coming to Christ for righteousness that's not true repentance and finally repentance is such a turning from sin that admits of no returning to sin In other words, there's a definitive turning point here so that the life goes in a different direction toward God permanently. 
or we can say it this way, the attitude of repentance never ends. We keep repenting as we go on walking with Christ. Repentance never stops until there's no more sin. And there's no more sin only in heaven. Perhaps that's why we need time to repent, as it says here. Just a momentary regret or embarrassment may appear as repentance. But time is needed for repentance to prove itself. And as more of our sin is is revealed to us, we repent all the more. There is something to be said for time necessary for repentance. And so I want to ask you today, have you really repented? Have you really turned from sin with your heart and turned from all sin and done so for the right reason and turned to God instead in such a way so as never to return to a life of sin and a life dominated by sin ever again? Perhaps we should ask the question this way. Have you begun to repent? Because it isn't just a one-time event. Though there is a definitive turning point. Yet that grace of repentance, I say, continues on and on. Have you begun to repent of your sins? Or consider this Difficult question. Have you stopped repenting? You say, well, I repented once, but I got over it. Listen, if you've ever stopped repenting, then you never truly started. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. So let me make these applications here as we draw to a close. We all have much for which to repent. We all have much sin against God. And the sins of one person may be a little different than the sins of another, but we all have much sin. And we need to repent of it. All we are in Adam as our representative is nothing but sin against God. All we do in actual life and experience is sin outside of Christ, outside of being in Christ as our representative. Every breath we draw is a sin against God. Every moment we live is an act of rebellion and treason against him. You say, well, I've never been in trouble. You don't have to have a criminal record on earth to have a criminal record in heaven. And we all have a long criminal record in heaven. The truth is, my friend, you need a savior and so do I. And we must turn from our sins and come to him 
take righteousness from him, find the pardon of our sins. We ought to define our life as time to repent. Think of of all the ways that people would define life. What is life? Well, life is this and that. Here's a biblical definition of life. The days, the years of life are time to repent. God's gift to us in way of opportunity to repent and to serve Him rather than to serve our sinful lusts. This, beloved, is the purpose for whatever portion of life that God has allowed you to live thus far. This is why He's given it to you. He hasn't given you this time, these 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, however many it is. He hasn't given you these years just so that you can do your own thing and please your own self. He's given you this time so that you can turn from your sin. Are you using your time to repent? Are you using your time for that purpose? If you're using it for anything less, you're perfectly wasting your life, wasting your time, wasting your opportunity. I think it was Augustine who said, I was born to repent. Repentance is a kind of full-time job for us because sinning is a full-time occupation. Apart from the grace of God, sometimes I see at funeral time people who have lived 80, 90, 100 plus years who obviously rejected Christ. Oh, what a waste of life. Every day that God gives us is a day to repent. Let us not live a day without repenting. When God gives us time to repent, is it not right and reasonable that He should expect us to use the time for that purpose? If that's the revealed purpose for the time that He gives us, then should he not expect us to use it in that way? How can God interpret our failure to repent other than as defiance and obstinacy against him? We have simply no excuse for continuing in sin when God gives us time to repent. And if you die in your sins, if you die unrepentant, the words of our text could be a kind of foreshadowing of what God will say to you on Judgment Day. 
he may say something like this, I gave you space to repent. I gave you time to repent. I gave you opportunity after opportunity to repent, and you repented not. Oh, what a sad day that will be for those who die in their sins. My dear friend, don't let that happen to you, but obey the gospel. Turn from your sin. Begin repenting today as you come to Christ as Savior and Master. Think how happy we would be if this text read this way. I gave her space to repent, and she repented. And she confessed her sin and forsook her sin and came in saving faith to me for salvation. Oh, that that were the case. How happy we would be if that were the case with those who are lost and in their sins today. And so may the Lord apply this to our hearts. May we who have repented continue repenting Inasmuch as we continue sinning, let us continue repenting. And if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never begun to repent of your sins, my friend, I hope that you will become so utterly sick of your sin and yourself before the eyes of a holy and pure God that you will only have one course, and that is to repent. And leave it all and come to Christ.